0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. morning, guys. If your New Year's resolution was to go to church every Sunday, you're one for one right here. Like, that's good, right? All right, you can feel good about that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about New Year's resolutions this whole time. That's kind of a tired thing. The pastors hit every single year. Uh, So hopefully I won't land on that. I'm also over New Year's already. Like, it's been like a week, you know, and it's done. It's gone. Christmas is over. I know we still have to leave our Christmas lights up until the end of the rodeo for some reason, but uh, I'm past it, right? I'm just, I'm over it. I'm ready for Mardi Gras, which is officially the next holiday. I know I'm in the wrong city for that, uh, but you should be prepared. Mardi Gras is the next thing on the liturgical calendar. Please don't come at me talking about Valentine's Day, all right? That's not a thing. Anyway, uh, you should be prepared to start this year really, really well, and the exciting thing is uh, we are going to actually jump back into Matthew, as you just saw, and we're going to spend the next three months in one week. I've heard a lot of complaints from you guys that we're going too slow in Matthew, and I'm slowing it down even further. We're just stopping time. We're grinding to a halt. We're actually going to be covering quite a bit of scripture, but uh, we're going to be doing uh, one week of Jesus, so Holy Week. Uh, is beginning with this passage. Today we start with the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he spends his next week, and we're going to actually end it on Easter. So the end of Matthew is going to be Easter Sunday, and it should be pretty splendid. Uh, Get excited for that. I know I am. So uh, with that being said, uh, let's jump in. So back into Matthew. Um, today we're going to be talking about like, the way that setting forms as like, a character in the story. I don't know if you guys have ever watched like a TV show or a movie where like, the setting and where they are is as much a character in the story as anything else. So think like the bear, uh, if you have ever saw that, like Chicago is kind of the other character in that story. And it has to be like this kind of gritty, yet somehow bougie kind of thing that only really Chicago can do really well, I think. Uh, I was even thinking uh, about this, that like Hogwarts is probably more of a character in Harry Potter than Neville Longbottom is. I mean, let's be honest. I'm told if you read the books, he's a big deal or look at him now. He's like a good looking guy. But like. Really, what's he there for other than just a little bit of comedic relief? Hogwarts, like the actual place, is like another character, you know? Like, can you imagine having Harry Potter without Hogwarts? Like, it just sort of happened, you know, out in the middle of a field. It wouldn't work, right? Uh, the bear outside of Chicago would have failed entirely. Uh, I'm sure you can think of your own examples. I was trying to think of more relatable ones. I guess Harry Potter's relatable. The bear's pretty niche. Maybe Central Park, Perk in uh, Friends. You guys remember that? That was a thing. Anyway, that doesn't really matter. All that really matters is... Today, you probably heard Danielle read that, and uh, it was a lot of scripture, so be prepared for that over the next couple months as well, by the way. Uh, It was a lot of scripture. You may have tuned out. But there's one thing that I think was happening in this scripture that none of us noticed because we're modern-day people living in Denver in 2023 or 2024. Excuse me. there It happened, all right? I did okay at the bank on Thursday, but here, first time. Anyway, uh, it happened. So, uh, us living 2024 in Denver, we miss this entirely, but to someone who was walking alongside Jesus and experiencing this at the very same time as him would have known that there's another character to this story, and that character is the temple. The temple was looming large in this story today. It's like a secondary character. You can think of it sort of like the Eiffel Tower in France, or I mean in Paris, or like the pyramids in Egypt, or like Denver's own 16th Street Mall, right? That's sad. That was supposed to be a joke because it's sad. We have no landmarks in our city. Maybe the mountains, I don't know. The big blue bear, Blucifer. I really like spent a lot of time working on this and could not come up with anything for our city. But Uh, Can you imagine? Like going to Paris, like you just, you know, the Eiffel Tower is always there. It's kind of like looming over everything in the city. You know, they, they set these laws to where you can't build buildings very high so that you can always see it from almost anywhere in the old city. It's kind of like a crazy thing. It's always, always there and it's always on your mind when you're in the city. The same is true for the temple in Israel. And in fact, even more than just being like an actual landmark, it was a religious landmark as well. For the people of God who were uh, trying to be God's people, they would have thought that all they ever needed to really achieve in life was to have the temple. You See, if you look all the way back in the history of God's people, uh, you'll see that the first thing that anyone did after the fall of Adam and Eve was to offer a sacrifice to God. And then all the great heroes of the faith would sacrifice to God. They would lift up these burnt offerings to him. Um, We see that right up until the Exodus, where in the wilderness, God actually steps in and says, okay, you guys are giving me sacrifices. I'm actually going to give you a process to be able to do this, so you'll understand what it's for and what it means, and I'm going to give you a place to do this. And in the wilderness, that was a mobile place. It was called the tabernacle. They would set up this group of tents, and it would be the place where you would come and meet with God and offer your sacrifices to him. And then they settled into the promised land, and they didn't have a place to sacrifice, and there was war, and there was blood, and there was killing, and there was... Uh, this kind of bad character named Saul, and then this amazing character named David comes along. He's a man after God's own heart. He starts, like, uh, actually restoring Israel to the people that they're supposed to be. They start winning over the promised land. Now they're in total control, and so David decides, what I need to do is build a temple, and God says, no, you can't build a temple. I'm sorry. There's too much blood on your hands. Your ancestor, your son, actually Solomon, will build the temple. So Solomon builds the temple, um, and it's one of the most amazing landmarks on earth at the time. He built it in 950 BC. Uh, but then 400 years later, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. So completely wiped out. Then, uh, 50 years or so later, a group of Israelites would go back to Israel to rebuild it. Uh, In 20 BC, Herod would pay for it to go through significant renovations. And yes, if you're tracking, it is that Herod, uh, the one who tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby, right? That same Herod that's like, no, wise man, you guys should come talk to me. So before Jesus was born, Herod actually paid for, funded, and orchestrated this whole huge renovation of the temple. And so now it's an even grander building. It's taking up like multiple city blocks. It's like multiple acres. Uh, It's spanning a large chunk of the city of Jerusalem. And this is the one temple uh, that Jesus is riding towards on the donkey that we see today. So I just, I, I, I promise the history part of all of this is over for those of you guys who just completely checked out as soon as I said 950 BC, right? I get it. I'm not a history guy either. But I want you to like just know the weight that the people of Israel are sort of like giving to this one structure that Jesus comes up to today. Like that's sort of what's looming over this entire story is that there is a temple standing there looking down at them. And all of this work and effort in making the temple and building it and restoring it and rebuilding it and all that stuff, all of it is centered around this idea that the people need to go to the temple to talk to God and to seek forgiveness from him. So that's what the temple was for, in broad strokes. It was a place where they could go and they could talk to God and seek forgiveness from God through the offering of sacrifices. But what's amazing in our story today is that when Jesus shows up at this temple, He, being God incarnate, was there to talk to them. He, being the Son of God, was there to forgive their sins. So He's coming up to a building that represents a place where people could go to talk to God and have their sins forgiven, and yet God is standing right in front of them in human form. Jesus, thus, stands as an affront to this temple. Everything about him that we see in this story today stands in juxtaposition, in opposition to the idea of the temple that the Israelites of this time would have had. He rides up on a donkey, starts flipping tables, starts healing people in the temple, and gets the chief priest all riled up. So what we're going to do today to start off the new year is actually just take a look at four different ways uh, that Jesus was actually an affront to this temple and why it was such a big deal. The first one is a conquering king on a donkey. Jesus was basically given a Caesar's welcome into town. This is how it would typically happen in the the old uh, ancient Near East. Uh, A king or a Caesar or emperor, whatever you want to call them, would come riding back into town after a military victory. All the people in the town would gather out to see him. They would lay their cloaks down. Uh, They would be praising the the king and the conquering hero. And it's because they just, like, you know, defeated all of their enemies. They'd ride in on a chariot or pulled on some sort of, like, big cart or on this, like, big war horse or something like that. Uh, and instead, Jesus comes in on a donkey, a different type of noble steed, right? It would be sort of like after the Nuggets won uh, the NBA last year, if, like, Nikola Jokic was, like, riding on top of a 94 Honda Civic instead of a fire truck. Like, can you imagine that, right? His legs are probably hanging off the front of it because he's a giant man, and he's just like, hey, guys, he might like it, actually, right? But for the rest of us, we'd be like, really, that's the—oh, Okay, all right. Here's how it went down with Jesus, right? It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee. You see, Son of David would have actually been the title that people were using to identify Jesus as the promised Messiah. He was the Son of David that was foretold by the prophets. And they are saying, we've been hearing about this guy that was supposed to come for hundreds and hundreds of years. Our prophets have been telling us all about it. And now he is finally here. He is finally showing up. Finally, everything that we have waited for has come to fruition. And here he is rolling into town. We will give him a hero's welcome. And he's on a donkey. Right? Womp, womp. That's got to be the most disappointing thing of all time. Especially for a lot of, like, Israelites that thought that he was supposed to come back and just whoop up on their enemies and make them, like, this military power and put them in charge of the whole earth and everything like that. This has to be so, so weird and disappointing. This is what Jesus chose to do. He's constantly flipping expectations as to what he was supposed to be. Right? That's kind of like Jesus' M.O. He was like too simple, too poor, too dirty, too uncouth. He hung out with the wrong crowd. He was from the wrong family, didn't go to the right school. His friends were fishermen. He ate grain on the Sabbath. He talked to Gentiles and Samaritans. This is what Jesus does, and it was an affront to the temple. Because it would have made a lot more sense... For this grand building that, remember, is still just one generation away from being, like, rebuilt into one of the grandest buildings on the planet. I mean, think about it. Herod was probably, like, trying to compete with, like, the Colosseum and stuff like that as he's, like, rebuilding and redoing this whole temple. This building was meant to house the Messiah, the coming king who was going to like set everything to rights, maybe even kick out Rome, uh, and he marches into town as a conquering hero, but instead of marching in as like a grand and prideful and arrogant hero, he actually marches in on a donkey as a lowly savior. This was an affront to the temple. The second affront that we see is Jesus implicitly says, you're doing it wrong. Uh, this is actually the passage where he overturns the tables of the money changers uh, in the temple. This is actually uh, the favorite passage of people with lots of anger. You've probably met these people, right? They're like, see, Jesus gets mad too. <laughs> that's why, my friends, when we get angry in traffic, that's actually good and righteous, right? It's a good thing. It's basically the same. Jesus was mad. I'll be mad too, right? Righteous anger. Uh, you can uh, shout at the top of your lungs, you can flip tables, you can maybe even whip up on your enemies, uh, aka those people that cut in front of you in line at the coffee shop, right, like righteous anger, we get behind that. Now, I don't know about any of that, right, and I'm definitely not going to talk about that today, but I can say Jesus made a lot of people mad here, and I think it was more about, it was about more than just their choice of where to set up the farmer's market, okay, Here's verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I used to think that this was about buying and selling sacrifices. In fact, I may have even said this to some of you before, and if so, I apologize. Uh, I used to think that, like, basically Jesus marches in and he goes, like, hold on. 'Cause you know the you know the deal, right? Like basically uh you would uh, commit some sort of sin, or maybe it was just a regular thing, and then you would need to bring an animal to the Lord to sacrifice it uh, to achieve forgiveness of your sins. And I thought the important thing there was like, you know, raising up this animal and bringing it to the Lord. And so I was like, well, if you just like show up and kind of, you know, buy something at the door, that's kind of cheating, right? Uh, it turns out this was actually like common and acceptable practice. There's nothing really fishy going on here. They were like, if you're going to travel a thousand miles uh, to sacrifice a ram, maybe just pick one up when you get there, you know? You you could sell a ram uh, at your home place and then walk for 1,000 miles and then actually use that money to buy another ram. That's not, like, too, too bad, actually. Uh, my understanding and interpretation of this was completely off. Um, there's another uh, interpretation that implies that people were charging too much and taking advantage of people. And so they're like, oh. The problem here is the prices, right? Like, honestly, going to the temple, that's the worst place to buy a donkey. Oh, not a donkey, you wouldn't sacrifice that, but you know what I mean, right? Like a ram, a pigeon, whatever it is you're in the market for, you might get sold a donkey under the you know, guise of being a ram or something like that. Uh, I don't really see that. That seems like a stretch in, in my mind. Like, why are not we just supposed to know that, even knowing the context? I actually read somewhere this week, and this is fascinating to me, that the prices on changing money, all right, so imagine people are coming from all across the known world. They've got to change currency. The prices on currency exchange were actually the cheapest at the temple uh, versus anywhere else. So it really, like, really calls into question this, like, oh, we know they must have been cheating. So what is the answer? Are you guys enjoying this, like, uh, you know, exegetical mystery as much as I am? Anyway, uh, the thing that I uh, discovered this week, uh, which I don't know why I've never seen before, Jesus says in verse 13, It is written, When Jesus says that, you should pause for a second and be like, what's he talking about? Matthew is huge on these things because Matthew loves telling us the way that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? So he says, it is written, and uh, Jesus is actually taking a look back at Jeremiah 7, and he's quoting Jeremiah when he says, uh, when he calls the temple a den of robbers, okay? Here's what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods you have not known? And then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Do you see how the context really like, you know, brings that to light? Like now we know why Jesus was mad. He's quoting Jeremiah from this scene where Jeremiah speaking for God is saying, how do you guys think that you can just keep on sinning and then show up into my house and then just offer a sacrifice and then go on sinning all the more? Like, do you really think, it sounds like what God is saying here to me, do you really think that you can just keep on living in opposition to the way that I have commanded and called you and equipped you to live, show up once a week or however often, and just be like, ah, eh, sorry, God, and then go right back to it? Like, do, you th- do we think we can, like, fool God that way? When Jesus implies that this house of God, the temple, has become a den of robbers, He's hearkening back to Jeremiah 7. And this is what Jeremiah goes on to say uh, later on in Jeremiah 7 and verse 14. For context, by the way, you're going to need to know this. Shiloh was a town uh, that was actually reduced to a pile of rubble during this particular time period when Jeremiah is talking. And so he says this in verse 14. Therefore, I will do to that house, or I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, to the place I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. God here, through the prophet Jeremiah, is threatening, I am going to destroy this temple that you think is your savior. See, Jesus could have been upset with a lot of different things that was happening here. We don't really know. But I think it was more so just a generalized sense that they were doing it wrong. That they were, like, approaching, following God completely incorrectly. Actually, think of it a little bit like uh, like this thing that companies are doing nowadays, where you have to like uh, you have to do something to get like you know approved by government regulations that you're not just destroying the environment or something like that. So you're building this new building, and they're like, "Oh, you're going to mow down you know an entire forest for this building, so you need to plant a million trees." And companies were like, "All right, we can do that." And then they started thinking, you know what? We're really not in the business of planting trees. So what should we do? So then they started hiring out people to plant trees, right? Uh, Sarah's family actually—they have a little bit of like this, this scrappy, terrible piece of land in like Waycross, Georgia, Uh, and they're uh, they're using it now to let a company plant like 50 scrubby trees just to like check some mark, you know, on a box, right? Uh, Now the next level of this actually, when you mow down an entire forest to build your company's uh, headquarters, now the next step is you just buy a few green tax credits right? So now you're like completely divorced from doing anything like really good for the environment. You're just like, oh, I can just pay for more of this stuff, right? And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. Like God sets up this entire system for forgiveness of sins, and then people are like, okay, uh, I got an extra 50 bucks. I guess I could knock that out and then get back to my sinning, right? Jesus says, no, it doesn't really work that way. You're missing the heart of this entire thing, I think what Jesus is saying here is, I am sick and tired of all this business around buying and selling my forgiveness. I am here to give it for free. God gave you a system of forgiveness of sins, and you turned it into a business. I am going to take your business and turn it into a gift. It is now free and available to all. This system that you couldn't even do very well, and this temple that you turned into a den of robbers, I'm going to take it all, and I'm going to turn it into a gift. Jesus says, I will pay the price. You get to enjoy the benefits. But he didn't stop there. A Affront number three, they don't belong here. After he kicked out the money changers and sellers, he set up shop of his own. There he welcomed people that weren't even supposed to be into the, in the temple to be healed so that they could be welcomed into the temple. Check it out. Verse 14, it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? That's a fun one right there. Out of the mouth of babes. That's where it comes from. Look at that. You just stumbled across that. No one's ever heard that phrase. All right. Anyway, back then children, and anyone with a physical malady would not be allowed in certain parts of the temple. So they would just sit outside or in the big court. Jesus said, welcome in, and by the way, you are healed. Like, I want you to just catch what's actually going on here. Like imagine, consider for the moment the lives of these people. Imagine if you had some sort of like ailment some sort of sickness, whatever it is, maybe you're blind, maybe you have leprosy, I don't know, and they would just sit, you would sit outside the temple begging for money just so that you could survive every day. You're thinking to yourself like, oh, people passing me going into the temple are probably going to be the most giving, they're probably going to be the most free with their money because they're already feeling bad, they're coming in for forgiveness of sins. Then you hear this huge commotion, you hear that there's this healer person that you've been hearing all about. And you wait for bated breath for the moment when you might actually get near him. And then he says to you, come inside the temple into the spiritual place that has been denied you because you're imperfect. Come inside, blind man, and see it for the first time. Carry in the cripple and let him walk the temple grounds after I heal him. That is the good news of Jesus. And it was an affront to the people who were running the temple who felt like those people still did not belong. Naturally, the religious elite did not like this, which leads us to our final affront. Who do you think you are? Those in power and the religious elite started to question Jesus' power. He didn't. They did not like how he was attacking their authority. They did not like how he was coming for their positions and for their prestige, for their power. Verse 23 says, And when he... The chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And as they discussed it among themselves, uh, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, if you recall from many, many months ago, maybe even years or decades when we first started Matthew, a long, long time ago, we met this guy named John the Baptist. Uh, he was a prophet and a baptizer. And he gained quite a following by announcing the way of the Lord. See, he sort of like said, hey, there's this guy coming, his name is Jesus, so you should seek forgiveness of your sins and I will baptize you to show that you are ready because Jesus is coming. Now, the people were big fans of John, Uh, the religious elite not so much. They didn't like that he was outside of uh, the regular pathways. He, like Jesus, did not have the pedigree or the training that the religious elite had, so they did not like him. He's also saying things that were pretty confrontational to them, uh, constantly sort of like bucking against them. The religious elite did not trust them, him. But Jesus sort of trapped them into this, right? He proved that in this moment, the religious elite were more worried about telling what they actually thought than they were about, like, or they were more worried about pleasing people than they were about saying what they actually believed. See, they didn't like John. They didn't trust him. They weren't big fans, but they knew that the people were. And so Jesus, in asking them, actually exposes the way that they're more worried about public perception than even having a stance, This is actually the introduction to some parables that we're going to hit next week where Jesus establishes his authority. Uh, So that's a little bit of a teaser because he is the son of God. He is the one with the only authority. But from this week, you should know uh, that for human beings to question Jesus' authority is kind of like a laughable enterprise in the beginning. That's why Jesus can be kind of cheeky here and hit them with, like, this other question. Then he tells them, like, a couple of parables, which, you know, as they're, like, sitting there processing these stories that Jesus is telling them, you can just sort of see being like, oh, oh, like, actually, you're the only one in charge. Here we are asking you, like, what gives you the authority? By the end, I imagine if they're seriously thinking and willing to entertain this idea that they're starting to think to themselves, what gives me the authority to ask Jesus why he has authority, right? It was an affront to everything that they had established. For them, authority was built on uh, who you knew, your pedigree, your training, your background, your family. Jesus didn't have any of those things, and yet people were still gathering around him, seeking what he knew, seeking forgiveness, seeking healing from him. It was an affront to the people who were in charge of the temple. I have one final affront for us this week. Uh, And it is basically the idea that we make it too hard. I asked myself in preparing for this week's sermon, what does this have to do with us? What is this all about? Jesus seems to be sort of like offending some Pharisees and healing some people who lived 2,000 years ago. He's talking about the temple, which doesn't even exist anymore. And by the way, end of that story is uh, the temple was destroyed less than, or about a generation after Jesus. In 70 AD, the temple was restored and has never been rebuilt. So even if you go into Jerusalem right now, there's actually, uh, there is a place where Muslims go to worship, uh, and then there's still the Wailing Wall that is there connected to the temple, which is from Solomon's temple, so that's sort of like still in existence. But as far as having an actual temple... It doesn't even exist today. So if your main takeaway from this was all like Jesus is better than the temple, then you don't even have to face any temptation there, okay? So you're not even, don't go to Jerusalem thinking like, well, I've got to decide. Is it Jesus? Is it temple? Like, you'll be disappointed, okay? Probably a bad time to visit anyway. But uh, that's not an appropriate joke. I'm sorry about that. No, no. Anyway, we're going to move on. So here's the point. We don't have a temple to worship at even if we wanted uh, we don't have any way that this is like actually affecting us. Uh, Jesus being an affront to the temple, that's not really like something that we're messing with, right? That's not something that we're bothered by. So what do we need to do? What do we do to take away anything from this morning? Well, here is a few tweets, uh, reflections. Uh, maybe one of them needs to be your mantra as we head into 2024. The first into the victory lap. His parade is riding into occupied territory on a borrowed donkey among people who would shout, crucify him just a week later. And he definitely doesn't need to do anything to suit our expectations of him. Second thought is when the church becomes a business, it ceases to be a church. We have to care more about our lost neighbors and about enjoying our own forgiveness more than we care about the busyness of doing church. Christianity can never be a formula or a system. It's actually much larger than that. It's actually a way of living that taps into the way that God created the world to exist from the beginning. It's much bigger than anything that could ever be boiled down to a simple business enterprise. third idea is that Jesus prioritized the sick, the marginalized, the poor, the forgotten, the broken, and the other. He didn't only talk to people who were already allowed in the temple. He actually made it so that others might be allowed to be in the temple and invited in. If your Christianity does not include caring for the least of these, it probably isn't Christianity. You have to ask yourself, we all have to ask ourselves daily, when you saw, if you were to see Jesus healing people at the temple and bringing people into the temple who weren't even supposed to be there, would you be the person who's celebrating with him? Would you be the person who is enjoying and praising him? Would you be like the children who are shouting Hosanna? Or would you be the people standing on the sidelines wondering why these people have been brought in? The final thought that comes from this week that I think we're going to see in this week and in next week as well is that Jesus is the only one with true authority over our entire lives. He is the Son of God and the forgiver of sins and the Savior of our souls and the King of the universe. If He doesn't have complete authority over your life, who does? Do you find that more of your energy is spent on questioning what Jesus actually said or questioning his authority over your life, or even maybe just ignoring it entirely? Or is more of your energy spent on actually praising him for who he actually is? If he doesn't have complete authority over your life, who does? Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.